0: Welcome, everybody, to Navigating Change, the podcast from Tybal Inc. I'm Pete Wright, and once again, we are coming to you from Nashville, Tennessee, at the Nakubo 2015 Annual Meeting, where Howard Tybel is officially holding court. Howard, I'm how holding are
1: you? Court in our biodome suite. We are again. We're even closer to Pluto at this point. <laughs> and, right? This is. <laughs> I'm actually
0: getting used to this being here. I actually don't want. I no longer want to go outside. <laughs> that's uh, it you don't you shouldn't need to right it's compl- I mean. it's it's homeostatic i think is the word uh, i'm afraid with uh, the rebreathing of what we're reading just <laughs> what it is to be plain. we have uh once again uh, a dear friend of the show mike gower coming to us uh, he's a senior vice president for finance and treasure for rutgers mike welcome back thank you pete glad uh, to be here you you have your hands in just about everything <laughs> Apparently, uh, So, so you're, you're becoming a staple on the show. And new to the show, I'm very excited. We have a new guest, uh, Bob Shea, former CBO himself, current senior fellow for finance and campus management at Nakubo. Bob, welcome to Navigating Change. Thanks,
2: Pete. It's great to be here.
0: Uh, you are—today, we're introducing our audience to a project that you are spearheading, as I understand it, Bob, the Economic Models Project at Nakubo. Now, I know the three of you are all up to speed and uh, on what this is. I am a, I would like to say, fantastic guinea pig for you. I know— Nothing about it, uh, and I, I hope that my ignorance of it will be uh, will, will serve as a model for others as you introduce yeah. this thing. So, Bob, could sure. you start us off? Tell us what is the Economic Models Project, and then you can each kind of uh, take turns sharing your roles. Sure.
2: The genesis of the Economic Models Project started uh, last year officially. Nakubo's board, uh, being pretty visionary, looked at the industry and and saw that higher education as an industry. From external stakeholders is is under extensive scrutiny. Um, tuition um, has risen over the last two decades to be a, a more significant portion um, for families to uh, to finance their children's education. And there's a whole litany of reasons why the the board uh, wanted to move forward. So there's in the uh, in the East and in the, the West, there's declining demographics for students, so that has pressure on on revenue. Uh, there's changing demographics uh, with different immigrant groups, uh, so we need to look at uh, bilingual um, opportunities in higher education. So there's a whole bunch of external things happening uh, where our board wanted to look at the economic models. Um, a contemporary example is what happened with Sweetbriar, Sweetbrier, the... Private Women's College in, in Virginia is going through a very uh, interesting uh, and difficult process of going out of business. Uh, their board and their cabinet made the decision to um, to go out of business, and they lost a lawsuit recently. So uh, the economics hasn't changed. Uh, I don't think the the outcome will change at all. But that's just a, a national issue. Um, picture of what's going on in our our industry. A decline in students, uh, a decline in revenue from state sources, pressure on philanthropy uh, for private schools, and what has been an issue with higher education over the last 20 years, significant growth uh, of tuition and fees above CPI over the last uh, 20 or 25 years. So those are some of the pressures uh, that our board wanted to look at. So f- over the course of the last six months, uh, the last the project really got going in earnest in February when we hired another uh, former chief business officer, Dr. Jacqueline Askin uh, from uh, Phoenix, Arizona. She joined us and over the course of the last six months, we've been meeting with different constituent groups throughout higher education. Uh, we've conducted 14 focus groups uh, with had a virtual focus group where uh, people who can't make it to our focus groups get to uh, give us their opinion um, via the internet. So we now have over 1,100 data points from these focus groups that we've met with.
1: You know, here's what uh, what was uh, interesting for me seeing how this has evolved. I think you can tell, Pete, that what we have here is uh, how to tell the story, and you know, at its at its foundation that. that The problem that higher ed deals with is the fact that not only do we have different ways of telling our story, we all have a different view of what priorities are. We have different language, then there's language across the aisle. So there are so many reasons why I think this project is beginning to uncover all of the uh, factors that contribute to why this industry moves together in one way but also why it's lagging and they're not getting momentum. And in many ways, I see this project as getting the right constituents together to begin to have a shared conversation. I,
3: I think this is one of the most important initiatives that Nakubo has ever done. Um, it is going to provide us language, definitions, concepts things that we can communicate both externally uh, and internally uh, we have a, a multitude of business models or economic models in higher education and and just in my institution we have dozens and dozens if you think about you know the differences between running professional schools and undergraduate schools or between running football or running dining and and running extension services or bus services and so on, there's a lot of dynamics there. And even at the, the high level, at the mission level, there are different economic models between education and research. And if we don't know what we're dealing with there, we can't um, move towards sustainable models. Right. And the- I think the sustainability is one of the critical, critical reasons of doing this because uh, – You know, many of our business models are no longer sustainable. So then, what? What are
1: we going to do? Right, and we're anticipating. We're anticipating. You know, sustainability sometimes is equated with uh, uh, survival, right? And I think sustainability is a view of if we don't start thinking differently, I mean, things are not going to change overnight. But we're going to wake up one day. And see that we don't have an approach really to think forward. So, the story that I that I think you guys are getting ahead of is not just how to get through it, but how to focus on thriving.
3: I would agree with that. But you got to start somewhere. Surviving isn't enough. Surviving uh, isn't enough. That's what you. That's what Sweet Briar is going through. Yeah. It, it, if you get to that point, you got a whole other set of problems. Right.
2: And I think. Per- Part of the reason, you know, there was a strategic reason why the board wanted to do it, but there's also a communication uh, reason why they wanted to do it. If you read the op-ed pages in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and the, the Chronicle and Inside uh, Higher Ed, you would think that every college in the university is doing a lousy job and students aren't graduating and getting jobs and, and doing great things. Nothing could be further from the truth. The contemporary narrative uh, in the national press is that higher education is broken, it's not. To just expand on on Howard's point, it's important that we do this project to get to the sustainability so that higher education can continue to drive the value that they have for generations in America. It's one of the best things uh, about the American system is our higher education system. And just a a little personal anecdote. Uh, I'm a a working class kid from a a Boston family uh, and I only got my education because of open access public uh, institutions. And through that, I got a love for learning and then was fortunate enough to get graduate degrees from two elite public universities. I, I would love to replicate that opportunity for for others. That's why Mike and Howard and I are passionate about this. It's to extend the opportunity that American higher education has given to generations uh, of Americans and, and we want to be able to replicate that,
3: yeah, and it goes beyond. Uh, it, it is very much providing that opportunity, but let's all recognize also that providing those educations and those opportunities for for the students now and the students to come will help to solidify what is an occasionally shaky economic condition in the United States.
1: That's right. To be able to weather. Those unanticipated future downturns, because right now, you know, I think that a lot of schools, if they have some minor shifts in tuition or enrollment, they're in trouble. I mean, trouble, you know, they're they're right on the edge and, and, you know, they're 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 doing what they've done every year, which is focusing on getting through the next year's budget. So I, I think, Pete, that this is really about. I mean, the Kubo, in its role in higher education with business officers, is, in my view, taking a leadership position, and and a stand around this. Uh, what's fascinating about that is that if you ask different constituents, if you ask academics, they often think that they should be driving the conversation. You ask trustees, they think they should be driving the conversation. Uh, I think it's a matter of that Nakubo is demonstrating a way that they can do it and then bringing in all those other bodies to play a role. I don't disagree that other groups can't take, uh, take a lead on this, but there's no question, and you can see it in the advisory group, the, the amount of interest and, and engagement. And this is going to be compete, just if you think about the culmination, tell me if this is right, a tool, and a tool for – different leaders in different sectors in higher ed to look at and say, what are the levers that we should be pulling based on the constraints we have and the nature of our kind of higher ed, whether it's community colleges, whether it's research, whether it's comprehensive, small liberal arts, that's the distinction we don't make. Some of the small ones, some of the schools individually have serious problems. You can call they're broken. Mm -hmm. The mistake we make is we have this lumping overarching, it's all broken, right?
0: Yeah. We love and, we love the narrative of the broken school. We love it because we have done such a good job in the media of characterizing U- US education as way too expensive, not really uh, you know addressing the impact of inflation over time and the cost of education. Like there are a number of these sort of sensationalist narratives that we love. It sounds to me like what this project is is around is helping is really to create that foundational stage or that that you know the foundational armwork uh, or or you know uh, framework for each of these other constituent audiences to be able to uh, actually operate with, you know, with a broader set of, of you know, data. Uh, is, is that what your objective is? I mean, really to, to provide that foundation for academics, for boards? And, and I think, you know, specifically to you, Mike, you know, as an uh, acting CBO right now, you know, how do you expect to be able to implement the, whatever sort of tools come out of this project? Um, it, this
3: tool is is facing two directions. It's facing inward and it's facing outward. Uh, the inward part is, and, and both of them are about communications, uh, the inward part is, is having or trying to move towards a common language, a common way of looking at how our programs are put together so that the academic leadership who really need to drive the mission, have context, have appropriate information, have frame of references in the economic side of things so as to to make the trade offs to make the choices to to consider the the alternatives and consider the consequences but it 's also so that both they and we as business officers can communicate outward as well uh, to get mm-hmm a better handle on the myths that are going right. out about higher education. You know, a lot of these discussions about the the, you know, the $60,000 uh, university, well, those are such a small component of the maybe not the number of universities, but the number of students who are served That's in right. the United States. Right. That's right. Whereas most of higher education is, is driven out in the public realm. But we need to be able to communicate to parents, to legislators, to governors, right. to other policymakers in Washington and and elsewhere, of of what it really is, what it's really going on. And
2: and two of the products that will come out of this are are definitely communication projects that that Mike talks about, both both internal and external. the The first deliverable that'll come out of this project is a white paper that will talk about the current state of higher education economic models, how we got to where we are today. And what we'll use as a starting point for that 1948 with the signing of the GI Bill, that was the democratization of higher education. When uh, soldiers came back, soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marine came back from uh, World War II, uh, colleges and universities went through a huge building boom on the faculty side, on the physical infrastructure side. Uh, That was the starting point of where we are today. So we'll go from then up until today. And then some of the work that we started here yesterday in a great session was what are some envisioned future states of the higher education economic model? Uh, That's really hard work. And one of the points Mike talked about the internal communication challenges is talking with the academic side of the house. One of the things we're really proud about about this project, we reached out to a wide range of folks including provosts, two groups of provosts and uh, groups of ACE fellows, which are academics who want to be academic administrators and college provosts and university presidents. One of those fellows, Audrey Bilger, who's a faculty member at Claremont McKenna in California and did her ACE fellowship year at UC Riverside in California, wrote for us in Business Officer Magazine, a uh, essay titled, It's Not Us Versus Them, Meaning faculty against business officers. That we all have to collaborate if we want this economic model to be sustainable, and if we need to, ch- if we want to change, to make this opportunity for American higher education available to a wide range of folks. You know, there's so much more that we could say about that adversarial relationship or the perception of
1: that adversarial relationship. When I think, uh, when I when I vision out what's going to happen with this, and why I think this is so powerful is that we've been telling a story to business officers for the longest time. We need you to play a more strategic role. And what's what's fascinating about that is that there are some that do because that's sort of how they approach their work, but many of them don't know how to navigate that conversation. And I think this, this project is actually gonna be challenging many more business officers in a positive way to say, You now have some things you can use when I think out what's going to be the next step in terms of the success around this will be to really be empowering those individuals to then say, all right, I'm going to play that leadership role in my institution. It's one thing to have the data and many of you, I know you, Mike, you approach your work that way. I know a lot of other business officers do, but I also know many others that actually they're not going through the motions, but they don't feel like they are a leader. So so I think that the potential here is to get to enable them to actually say, all right, we don't have we don't have a reason that we can still hold back. We have the data we need. Now we just have to show some chutzpah.
2: At last year's board meeting when John Walden, the Kubo's president, and Mary Heron, who was last year's chair, announced this project, they both referenced the need for bold leadership That's by right. chief business officers. That's
3: well right. and, and and that is um it, it's part of the mission of the organization. And it's the strategic goal. When when Bob referred to the board initiating this project, that it initiated this project. It came up through the last strategic planning process and said, we must provide these capabilities and tools and opportunities to our members so that they can be the strategic leaders in these discussions. Right. If we don't do that, shame on us. Right. If we don't do that, our institutions are at
0: risk. As we uh, get toward winding down here, I wonder, I mean, you, you said, Bob, that you've, you have been collecting a ton of data, it sounds like. it. Do you have any initial insights? Have you started pulling together those insights? Uh, anything that, that has jumped out at you that, that uh, has supported or surprised uh, you in the work that you're doing? Well, that's a both that's
2: a, supported and surprise. Yeah, that's a that's a great segue because it feels like you uh, might have sat in our session yesterday <laughs> afternoon. We brought yesterday afternoon we brought together uh, seventy eight chief business officers and about twenty five senior members from our industry partners, exhibitors, sponsors, consultants, bankers, together to talk about this very difficult issue, and the the question that we asked of all the focus groups was this. What strategic issues, spoken or unspoken, on your campus, are inhibiting you from moving to a sustainable economic model? What was great about this was that Bob stopped and said, "What do you think I mean by unspoken?" And somebody immediately answered. Someone said, "Sacred cows." Sacred cows, mm-hmm. and, and that was the intent. Uh, we we were very intentional in in putting spoken or unspoken because if you understand the culture of higher education, you understand. That in some meetings some topics are verboten, right.
1: but but I'll tell you something here as a, as a as an observer and participant, I think we also have to be conscious of making sure that we remain being bold in this project, because there's the challenge, and because I see this in lots of places where we thro- we know how many constituents we need to be respectful of, but there's a place where. I cannot tell you the number of times I've seen people step back from being bold uh, because of the risk associated with it. This project could suffer from that same thing. Uh, and it's, it, to me, it's just a reminder that we have to keep reminding ourselves, what does it mean for us to be bold? And being bold uh, has a risk associated with it. Right. There's no guarantee. I mean, you are going to ruffle some feathers here. you know what? Maybe you should be. But in a way that shows respect— and, and, and demonstrates that how much you care deeply about it. And it's not about offending, but it's about putting some of the brutal facts on the table.
2: I wanna answer explicitly, you, you had asked what some of the themes that are coming out from the research that we've compiled over the last six months. And across each one of the 14 groups that we've met with, there's five themes. The first one is resource allocation, uh, revenue, expenditure and investment issues. The next is higher education are labor-intensive organizations. Um, so all of those things that come with labor-intensive organizations, salary and benefit costs, across the administrative spectrum, across the academic spectrum, across the auxiliary spectrum. Next is capital considerations, the ubiquity of technology, the facilities arms race, uh, the issue of both organizational debt and student debt. Uh, next is the external environment. Uh, we are large ecosystems uh, with shared governance. Mike talked about the complexity of of Rutgers earlier. I think that is indicative of the complexity of a research institution, but that they're the largest, most complex organizations, but even small 2,000 student liberal arts colleges are complex ecosystems on their own, and then last and uh, certainly not least certain and certainly not least is the issue that went across every single issue that came up across each one of those fourteen groups was the issue of leadership, the organizational behavioral challenges of dealing with culture of dealing with structure of dealing with policy and and having again that that courage and the character to take these issues on.
3: This is the most important one. Well, it gets back to your point a minute ago about being bold. Yeah. You know, you,
1: you got to start with where we are, right? mm -hmm. And where we are is, I mean, you're inventing something that you're going to be inviting people outside of this inner circle to say, be bold. I'm going to say the story starts with this group being bold. And what does that mean? And it's a question more than an answer. It's a a tough one because it doesn't have a clear, linear path, um, and it's got risk associated with it. But of any of those issues, the other ones are important, but the driver for change is leadership.
3: And and that leadership is not command and control. I mean, leadership has got to be influence.
2: Persuasion. Persuasion. Collaboration. That's right.
3: Communication. Yep uh, involving in the information, right. all, all those elements and, and it, it, command and control will just lose us.
0: This is, this is a, uh, it, it's a wonderful story and it's fantastic to showcase it here because we love talking about work that is capital I important. And that's what this feels like. Uh, what is your uh, timeline for releasing your first, uh, white paper as we start seeing these resources, uh, hit the streets?
2: Great question. We hope to have the uh, first white paper concluded by the end of this calendar year, so maybe we can promise it as a Christmas present, uh, <laughs> or maybe a Hanukkah present. Was that for me? Uh, yeah. Why not? I just wanted. To... Yeah. Of course it was. Okay. It for... <laughs> uh And and it, it's a, a two year time frame, Pete. We're we're looking at uh, releasing the first white paper sometime late in the fall. The second one that talks about the future states of the higher education economic model sometime prior to our annual meeting next year in Montreal. And the third and most definitive product is something that we're calling the discussion guide. We need to have a conversation around the name for that, but that will be an extensive guide that will help our members walk through the difficult cultural, structural, and policy change that they need to do to get to a sustainable
3: economic model. Yeah, that's the real toolkit, if right. you will. Right. Exactly. Uh, so yeah. that you know, we we've got to equip all the business officers out there, whether they they've had the tradition of pushing this envelope or not, um, give them something to work with. Including
1: the, the, I mean, the rise of the the swell of new business officers. In the next three years, think about the education
3: and they're one, going to receive from this. And ones that are coming from outside of higher education, no which question. is even That's more important, more challenging for them as individuals.
0: Oh, absolutely. Pete? That that gets to my final question for, for anyone who wants to jump on this one in particular. You, We have, with our audience, fantastic uh, business officers and provosts and presidents. Uh, do you have any particular call to action? What would you like them to take away and, and be thinking about as you are working to build this set of fantastic resources. I'll
1: answer that. So here's, and I'll I'll start. Um, Get ready. Get ready for uh, having tools that you may not have had in the past. And the muscle to start developing is practicing Mm -hmm. taking risks. Because I think that risks is about doing something Seeing that you survived, doing it again, and seeing that you can produce a better or more profound outcome because you do it, it's a practice skill. It's not going to happen overnight. So this is something you start with. When this stuff becomes available, you're going to have even more tools to move this thing forward. What about you, Bob? Uh,
2: the, the call to action for me is we've actually used the framework for our call to action. There's a, a guy at Harvard Business School by the name of John Carter. Who has a framework for change? And there's yeah. eight. Uh, there's eight things that he says you need to institute change in an organization, or in our case, in, in industry. And Nakubo thinks that we can really impact the first five. There's eight, and I'll, I'll I'll read all eight. The first one is a sense of urgency. That's what we're doing right now. The second is building a, a powerful guiding coalition. Again, Nakubo's work with all our outreach with the focus groups. Creating a vision, that started yesterday with engaging with over a hundred plus people to ask them what was the most important. Communicating the vision, part of what we're doing here today and empowering others to act on that vision. Those are the five things that we think Nakubo can really do and that's our call to action. Uh, Howard just talked about it a little bit in number six is plan for and create short-term wins. So you get that success, you do it again, that gives you the courage of your convictions to move forward. Mm. Seven is consolidate improvements and produce more change. And lastly, number eight, institutionalize new approaches. That new approach is those new business models that uh, we'll be talking about and that toolkit that we will be giving to our member CBOs.
3: What about you, Mike? What do you, when you think about call to action, what comes to mind for you? Starting the conversations. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have to wait till the white paper is out to start the conversations about um, what are the what are these considerations at at my place or at, at mm. your place. Um, it, it, these are going to be tools that will be available, but those conversations need to start. They really need to be going through the academic leadership, the faculty, the the administrative leaders, uh, all those, the trustees. You know, so we don't have to wait. To do that, Uh, we can get those concepts out there, and then the tools will be available to us to continue and and to promote, uh, continue the conversation and promote action, but don't wait for them. Outstanding.
0: That's a a great way to leave us. Thank you very much, all of you. Uh, Mike Gower at Rutgers University, thank you for your time today, sir. Pleasure. And Bob Shea, I hope that you will come back because I feel like this is a story that, uh, that will have many more chapters uh, over the course oh, of the Oh, he'll be back. <laughs> he'll
3: be back. Thanks, Pete. With that Hanukkah present.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and Howard Dybel, uh, I hope you are released from the Biodome shortly. We um, are le- I'm leaving
1: here shortly and then heading to Alaska. Oh, so- geez. Yeah, don't even get me started. I'm, <laughs> excited.
0: I'm excited. All three of you coming from the uh, Nakubo 2015 annual meeting is just closing up shop today uh, in Nashville, Tennessee. Thank you all for your time. Thank you for downloading and listening to the show. Don't forget you can find out more about us at tybelink.com. Subscribe to the show for free in iTunes. Make sure you don't miss a single episode, just like this one. Uh, we appreciate your time and attention. Thanks, everybody. Until next week, I'm Pete Wright. We'll catch you on Navigating Change the podcast from Tybal Inc.